threat of abrupt climate change. Uh, if the past is anything, go by some 10,000 years ago, uh, that saw seas rise, you know, five metres in 20 years. That won't happen in my lifetime, but even before we, we get there, we're now entering an era of rolling climate crises and extreme weather events without time to catch breath uh, between one disaster to the next. So, you know, from the devastating 2020 Australian bushfires uh, to the floods last year in New South Wales and Queensland, in March just gone, millions of dead fish in uh, Menindee, New South Wales after a heat wave. Uh, we saw globally last year extreme heat waves in China, South Asia and Europe, extreme drought in Africa, sandstorms in the Middle East, uh, and the floods that drowned Pakistan and Bangladesh, with a third of both countries underwater. Uh, 33 million people in Pakistan affected, uh, almost 2,000 people died. Globally, the number of um, extreme hot days every year when the temperature reaches 50 degrees Celsius or more has doubled uh, since the 1980s. Uh, there's an area of India and Pakistan that incorporates the scorched Pakistani uh, town of Jacob. Jacobabad, did I say it correctly? Jacobabad, uh, which recorded 51 degrees last year. And perhaps even more concerningly, uh, for a brief time, a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees. And wet bulb is where you measure humidity and uh, temperature together. Because when the humidity gets high, the human body can't get rid of heat, it can't get rid of sweat. And prolonged exposure to wet bulb temperatures over 31 can cause brain damage. 35 is really the limit of survivability. And so rising temperatures are going to be a union issue for anybody who works outdoors. Um, perhaps the latest news is the slowdown of the deep ocean currents, which have been stable for thousands of years. Uh, these have been likened to the lungs of the ocean. Um, and they'll slow 40% by 2050, heading for collapse. The science of uh, climate change has been known for over 100 years. Uh, it's been seriously settled for about 60 uh, since the you know, carbon dioxide graphs came out of the Hawaii Observatory. And the ruling class as of the world have been keenly aware of what has been coming for 30 to 40 years. I mean, just one example, uh, the uh, ex-UK Prime Minister, ruling class warrior Margaret Thatcher, said in 1988, the use of fossil fuels had unwittingly, unwittingly begun a massive experiment with the system of this planet itself. Um, and it was her neoliberal project and privatisations that have made dealing with it so much harder. It was clear from the uh, International Climate Conference, COP27, that our rulers won't act to save the planet. The biggest delegation at the conference was not people impacted by climate change, uh, but <coughs> oil and gas companies. Uh, record 636 fossil fuel uh, reps were there. And in all of the 27 uh, COPs that there have been, uh, there has never actually been an agreement to reduce uh, fossil fuel use. And why? I think because uh, COP is part of capitalism. Uh, the representatives there are made up of, uh, are from competing nations, uh, competing to protect their own interests. And I think at one level our rulers don't uh, want to break the planet. You know, after all, they own it but they can't see any way out within their own system. So ruling class strategy today from country to country veers between denial, greenwashing and tinkering with climate action. Uh, so market mechanisms or carbon prices that can't work. 
And our rules know that these strategies uh, can't work. So at the same time, they're gambling, or perhaps that's too strong a word, they're praying there might be some technological fix uh, that comes down the, down the line. And all the while, they're putting their serious money uh, into preparation uh, for war, to fight for their own interests amongst the chaos that is coming. In the wake of uh, the Labor and Greens deal about the safeguard mechanism, and I'll have a bit more to say <coughs> about that, uh, Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute said in the Saturday paper, the climate wars are far from over, they won't be over until the fossil fuel industry stops waging them. And that is absolutely true, but I think it's important to understand that it's not just fossil fuel business, but business and state power across the board uh, that we're up against. It's not that there are bad fossil fuel companies over here and environmentally good ones uh, everywhere else. Uh, we face a systemic problem. So every sector, from manufacturing to heating to transport to agriculture, uh, <coughs> is massively reliant on coal, oil and gas. Uh, military emissions are also enormous. The United States, uh, for instance, uses so much fuel that it releases more carbon just as military than 140 countries. And fossil fuels are baked into capitalism. Um, ironically, perhaps, at the, at the birth of capitalism, the Industrial Revolution, what powered it was uh, water. It was uh, water wheels turning from rivers. But uh, the use of coal was uh, particularly beneficial to the, the new system because it was mobile. And so coal could be moved to where workers were in the cities and production could be close to workers. It was also particularly useful for war. Uh, it meant that ships weren't reliant on wind, but they could move anywhere uh, at any time. Uh, the discovery and use of oil was another step uh, again. Uh, oil has a higher energy density than coal. Pipelines could move it very easily. And it proved absolutely decisive in World War II. And so what you find is that after World War II, oil production tripled around the globe. Uh, and the plastic problems that we face today are a byproduct of that industry. Uh, the war in Ukraine today shows the centrality of uh, fossil fuels uh, to the system. Uh, you know, it's not, not only is it not solar-powered tanks or battery-powered tanks that are doing battle, uh, we've seen the, you know, the, the gas pipeline dilemmas between Europe and Russia and the calls for energy self-sufficiency, which is all about fossil fuels, oil and gas. Uh, in the wake of the war, uh, Biden in the US has abandoned uh, his green pledges to encourage more oil and gas. Uh, in particular, he's about to start uh, drilling in Alaska despite a promise to have no drilling on federal land. Uh, he's approved 6,500 uh, new oil drilling uh, licences, which is more than Trump. And the problem isn't that we lack the technology uh, to transition to renewable sources. It's that taking action means a challenge to the way that capitalism operates. Under capitalism, investment takes place based on what's most profitable in the short term. Uh, the needs of ordinary people and the planet are irrelevant unless they can be commodified for and sold for profit. And in addition to that, the people who run our world are locked into domestic and international competition with each other in an economy that's powered by fossil fuels. And I think the same pressure uh, to war is the same reason nations won't act on climate. Uh, imperial competition. And what I mean by imperialism is the, um, the fusing of economic and geopolitical uh, competition. Before capitalism, you had geopolitical, uh, you know, you had wars uh, for territory. But what's new with capitalism is, is the economic, it's sort of total uh, competition. 
And so corporations look to their nation states to protect their interests uh, across borders. And they've got trillions of sunk investments in fossil fuels uh, that they are not about to abandon. In Australia, uh, cheap fossil fuel energy has traditionally been an international competitive advantage. And Australia's uh, bosses are loath to give that up. And so corporations of all kinds are united that everything, including climate action, has to be subordinate to profit. So they all agree that if renewable energy isn't profitable, we can't build it. There might be a handful of companies that occasionally mouth climate sentiment, but even when that's not greenwashing, none of them want to upset uh, the, the capitalist apple cart. It's been corporations of all sorts that have enthusiastically supported privatisations, anti-union laws that restrict the right to strike and put shackles on our ability to fight for the climate. And this isn't the same for workers. Climate change is a question of class. Uh, workers will be amongst those hit hardest uh, by climate change, but more importantly have the interest and potential power to make change. And I'll, I'll come back to that. It's true that um, existing workers in fossil fuel industries uh, fear job losses, uh, particularly where they've won good union conditions and pay over time, and in places where entire towns have been based on fossil fuel uh, extraction that were simply shut down would be economic uh, suicide. But because workers fear job losses doesn't give them an interest in fossil fuel companies. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to quote um, Tommy, who's here today, uh, MUA member who spoke to the Daily Telegraph uh, about working as a seafarer for offshore gas projects uh, like Gorgon. And he said, none of us wake up in the morning and rub our hands together thinking, I can't wait to put down another gas pipeline. We're there because we need work. And these are often jobs with good conditions fought for over many years by our unions. The fossil fuel industry has incredible political and economic power and we need to build and mobilise the power of our unions to take them on if we're going to stand a chance of winning serious climate action. Uh, crucial for this will be showing workers that the climate movement is serious about fighting for an alternative. If we create good unionised jobs in renewable energy, uh, public transport and other low emissions industries, workers will take those opportunities with both hands. And that has happened in places, you know, Port Augusta, uh, workers fought after the coal um, industry shut there for the solar tower, uh, which, you know, collapsed because of lack of funding because of the market systems. And I think workers, more importantly, have the potential power through strike action to shut down fossil fuels, to shut off corporate profits. And that's not just an idea, but a historical uh, reality. In the 1960s and 70s, the last great upturn of struggle in Australia, uh, the Militant uh, Builders Labourers Federation, uh, <coughs> through you know, a democratic strike action, placed over 50 successful green bans um, on areas that saved areas from Kelly's Bush in Sydney uh, to the Redfern, Redfern Aboriginal Centre. Uh, workers on the railways in the 1970s refused to move uranium exports. And I think uh, COVID hit the climate movement here and globally hard. But if you look before then, the climate strikes uh, were starting to involve organised workers. Uh, MUA members, uh, academics in Sydney struck to attend. Uh, I'm a teacher. I was in Melbourne at the time. I went with a small delegation of unionists from my work. Other workers I know uh, took leave or sickies. So a significant portion of the hundreds of thousands who marched uh, were workers. And we need to rebuild those climate strikes 
It has to be on the basis of a just transition and climate justice. Uh, we also need to make common cause with Indigenous activists uh, fighting the fossil fuel developments on their land. Uh, very importantly, in New South Wales, the Gomoroi are uh, fighting Santos uh, in the Pilliga. We need to demand in those climate strikes and rallies 100% publicly owned renewable energy. Why? Because it's what we actually need. Uh, publicly owned means that it would actually happen. Uh, if you look at what the ruling class does when it's serious about anything, for instance, the new $368 billion submarines, they spend the money directly. There's no offsets, there's no market, market mechanisms, there's no tricky schemes. And that renewable energy would directly reduce emissions and create jobs. Instead of that, at the moment, what we get from government is greenwashing. Uh, confusing market mechanisms like the safeguard mechanism which was in place for seven years under the coalition and failed to reduce emissions at all. Uh, Labor and the Greens have tinkered with it, but it still won't stop new, new coal and gas, uh, which the IPCC, the International Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, has declared we must end to avoid climate catastrophe. Um, the safeguard mechanism is still based uh, on the lie of offsets. You know, globally, the, the carbon budget is already spent. Uh, net zero, I think, is a lie. Even if offsets weren't fraud, which they most, mostly are, I'm not going to go into the details, maybe people can do that in discussion, there's no offset uh, that is going to make uh, new coal and gas OK. Um, we can't get real climate action with the kind of narrow parliamentary negotiations that we saw from the Greens. They won some uh, concessions, but I was watching a... Um, Adam Bant uh, explained the new mechanism in a, a presentation of the Australia Institute. And he says uh, there were going to be 116 new coal and gas uh, projects. Uh, half of those won't go ahead. There are a lot of those that weren't going to go ahead anyway, but that still means that 58 of them are. Uh, there's a, a graph he showed and about the, what changes are going to happen under the safeguard mechanism. And just last week in school, I'm a teacher, I was teaching my year sevens about misleading graphs and not having any scale on one of the axes, and it was exactly like that with the graph. There was no scale about what was actually going to change. Uh, so there's supposed to be a hard cap, but there's no amount that at which it goes down by each year. If it's uh, breached, it simply goes to the minister, and he has to come up with an explanation for that. I mean, more particularly, by what mechanism in the real economy are emissions going to go down under the safeguard mechanism? If there's nothing to build renewable energy, if we've got new coal and gas coming, if there's no mechanism of taking existing fossil fuels out um, of the system, by what mechanism is that going to happen? And I think worse, in some ways, is not that the Greens have said, this is just a starting point, now we're going to build the climate strikes and fight for what needs to be done. Um, it is being sold as part of their balance of power strategy, something they can take to the next election. They push Labor a little bit. So Bant in that talk said the next step is a climate trigger in environmental legislation that they want to try and get through in a year's time. Um, we need, <coughs> instead of that sort of balance of power strategy, to build, to build a movement. But we also have to be prepared to fight for system change, not climate change, when all of the logic points in that direction. I think a different kind of world is possible. That it is better to overthrow the system than to overthrow the planet. You know, can we get some climate action under capitalism? Yes, there's renewable energy. I think that wouldn't have happened without decades of arguments from the scientists. 
uh, without the protests, without you know the, the climate action in the workplace. Can we get more from a stronger movement? Yes. But can we completely stop fossil fuels and repower our economy uh, in wars that we need? Can we repair the earth under the system we live in? I think the dynamic of the system is environmental destruction. We can push and win things, but the system keeps pushing back. And what I think that means is that when the logic of climate action points beyond the limits of the market, beyond the limits of capitalism, we can't shy away from the action we need, the demands that we need. And I also think a different relationship with the planet is possible. Uh, Aboriginal people lived uh, on this continent for 60,000 years. Uh, capitalism's been here a mere 500. Uh, they adapted to and shaped their environment, particularly with the use of fire. But they did it in a way that was um, beneficial to themselves and their society and was sustainable. And it wasn't simply because they have a smaller population uh, than we do either. When uh, Captain Cook brought capitalism to Australia, uh, actually the uh, invaders' war against the indigenous people caused population decline and environmental destruction increased as the population uh, declined because agricultural production was now for the market and profit didn't care uh, about the environment. We can't go back to that kind of pre-class society but it does show that connection to and caring for our country is possible. Aboriginal people manage with their culture and knowledge and law. I mean, today we have uh, since centuries of scientific and technological development which could be turned to repairing the planet uh, if we could only gain democratic control over that uh, technology, over our labour, over production. And I think what we need to do that is, is revolution. If you look historically in the few brief years after the Russian Revolution in 1917, where that did happen before uh, you know, Stalin internally defeated the revolution, uh, in 1918 the Bolsheviks issued a decree on land that declared all forests, waters, minerals to be the property, prop, property of the state as a prerequisite to rational use. The Bolsheviks set up protected forest zones to specifically control erosion, protect water basins and the preservations of monuments of nature. And they set aside vast portions of the country where commercial development would be banned, including tourism. These uh, Zapovedniki, as they called them, were the first protected ter territory anywhere <coughs> to be created by a government exclusively in the interest of scientific study of nature. Uh, one of the leading Bolsheviks uh, at the time, Nikolai uh, Bukharam, wrote, No system, including that of human society, can exist in empty space. It's surrounded by an environment on which all its conditions ultimately depend. If human society is not adapted to its environment, it's not meant for this world, its culture will inevitably pass away, society itself will be reduced to dust. There are some in the climate movement that say that the situation is so urgent that we don't have time to make a revolution, we don't have time to build a mass movement. They'll point to things like the Vietnam War. Uh, yes, the war stopped, that was stopped by the movement, but that took a decade to build. Or the anti-apartheid movement, which took uh, decades. But I think there is no alternative. So they'll sometimes say we need to grasp whatever uh, is on offer, however little it is, whatever useless market mechanism is, is offered. But I think it's that kind of politics which has actually led to delay, uh, subterfuge and inaction over the last 30 years. I'll also say this, um, there is already climate change that we haven't stopped. Uh, it's entirely possible that we have or that we will soon pass tipping points 
uh, that will make abrupt climate change certain and make current tragedies uh, seem insignificant. But there won't be any bell that sounds when we reach or pass those points. If we don't want our atmosphere to end up like Venus, there is no point at which we have to stop pumping CO2 in the atmosphere, no point at which we have to stop mitigating uh, further damage, there'll be no point at which we have to stop fighting for the climate. Revolutions can spread quite quickly when they kick off. You look at the Arab Spring, despite that defeat uh, in 2011 and onwards, it spread from one country to another quite, quite quickly. And I think it's also true uh, that if, that when our revolution succeeds, we'll inherit a damaged planet. And I don't want to be dismissive um, about the scale of potential climate destruction that might come. But I am reminded when I think about it, about the words of uh, Derudi, uh, one of the, the leaders of the Spanish Revolution in uh, 1936. Uh, he was an anarchist moving towards socialist politics. In an interview in 1936, uh, a journalist put it to him that even if successful, they will inherit a hole in the wall. And he replied, uh, we've always lived in slums and holes in the wall. We all know how to accommodate ourselves for a while. For you must not forget that we can also build. It's we who built these palaces and cities here in Spain and America and everywhere. We the workers. We can build others to take their place and better ones. We are not in the least afraid of ruins. We are going to inherit the earth. There is not the slightest doubt about that. The bourgeoisie might blast and ruin its own world before it leaves the stage of history. We carry a new world here in our hearts. That world is growing in this minute. Uh, another world is possible. Let's build the climate movement and get there.